Scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the heart in, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offering for excuse me, offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. We are in our second week of Advent, and as we read, it is our week of peace and what our, our kids are looking at uh, downstairs as well. The lack of peace in our lives seems incredibly more acute during Advent, during the end of the year, during the Christmas season. We're ending the year, and at the holidays, we believe, or at least we hope, that we should have peace in our lives, that things should go uh, the way they were intended to. Uh, but we are quickly reminded that the lack of peace in our lives only becomes more evident. Long-standing grudges that we have with family members, how are we going to navigate those this year? The realization that we might not have as much or as many finances available to give nice gifts to loved ones or to be able to pay our bills at the end of the year. We have greater, deeper, and more acute realization that we hold a few extra pounds on our bodies and maybe we didn't accomplish all the goals that we had hoped to by the end of the year. The reality that we are pretty much in the same place now as we were at the beginning of the year. We don't have the peace that we long and we desire. Peace in the Bible is much more deeper than just like not being at war and everybody just getting along. It's a wholeness. It's a flourishing. It's integrity. It's congruency in our lives and what we're experiencing and what we uh, want and desire, what God desires for his world as well. The word, It comes from the word, uh, the Hebrew word shalom. To have shalom is to be fully alive in every aspect of of our lives be flourishing. Who here has shalom fully in their life? Yeah, that's what I was afraid of <laughs> and expecting. Who feels completely at peace right now? Who's not struggling with anything? Paul reminds us that Christ is the one who brings us peace that transcends understanding. He says this at the end of Philippians. It's quoted at the very beginning of the worship guide and the reflection section as well. Philippians is usually called the epistle of joy for how much joy Paul, uh, how much Paul talks about joy in the life of the Christian as well. And it's joy that we're kind of actually talking about today. Peace begets joy. They are... Uh, co-laborers, if you will, in the life of the Christian. And it's this sense of joy uh, that is dependent upon peace. 
Has anyone here ever written a song? Yeah, Sarah? Yeah? An anti-Christ. Oh, I like that. Okay. Anybody else? Nick? Never written a song. Has anybody written a poem? Yes? No poem. What what caused you guys to write these things? Angst. What? School. School. <laughs> it was an assignment. <laughs> you thought you were good? <laughs> what kind of song or poem would you like to have written? What would be the subject matter? What would be the name? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. Bubble gum. Mm hmm. <laughs> sad dad songs it's kind of where I live right now so yeah oh man well here we have a song that is written Mary sings one out of this out of joy it's called the Magnificat um, which I kind of wanted to call the sermon the Magnificat but that was that was too bad of a dad joke so nobody even laughed so man alright we are done uh, so <laughs> Uh, last week, we talked about Gabriel, the angel, visiting Mary, and in doing so, he tells her about her uh, kind of cousin, her, her, one of her kin's people, if you will, who is much older than her. Mary's about 12 or 14 years old, very likely, and Elizabeth is like way beyond the age of bearing children and has been barren her whole life. But he says, one of the signs that God is doing, the thing that I'm telling you he's doing, birthing in you, the child, the Savior, the Mighty One, the Holy One of Israel, is that Elizabeth is going to be, is pregnant as well. And she's in her third month, or sixth month already. And so Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. And when they come together, they, uh, the baby, John the Baptist, who's in uh, Elizabeth's belly, leaps for joy. And Elizabeth blesses her and says, you will be called blessed. Um, it is for joy that um, my baby, my womb leaps, and to see you, to be near you, for you are carrying the Messiah. And so Mary writes a song. The word magnificat comes from the Latin, and it comes from the very first word, my soul magnifies the Lord. This magnification is not one. You know, there's two ways that we can magnify things. It can either be a, a magna, uh, a microscope, excuse me, a microscope where we take things that are very small and look at them uh, to make them much bigger so that we can see them. Or it can be that of a telescope, which is something huge and mighty and very far away that we are able to bring close and we are able to see more intimately, more detailed. This is a magnification that brings a big, often seemingly far away God near to us. You know, there's kind of it's kind of a weird thing to read this and go like, did Mary, this like twelve to fourteen year old girl from uh, a really obscure town uh, in the ancient Near East, write this? But when we 
really look at literature that has come out of the apartheid or the Holocaust or the Antebellum South, we begin to see a world that is recognized how a young, oppressed Jewish girl could write such a beautiful song. It's language that is steeped in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, uh, where the phrases, even some of the phrases that we sang earlier this morning or read in the Psalms just come through in what she writes here this morning. The subject of it is a God who has drawn near to her. He has not abandoned her, and he has not abandoned his people. He's remembered them. I think it's incredibly important that we remember that this is the God that we worship, that we long for, that we desire uh, this time of the year when things that we long for, like when we long for peace and we don't have it. God reveals himself to be a God who is near and remembers his experience, uh, his people. I think there are two temptations, though, that we can have when God is drawing near to him. We can privatize him or we can politicize him. By privatizing, I mean we hold God only to ourselves. We keep to ourselves. We just kind of hold it and nestle it and keep it all wrapped up. Or we politicize him, by which I mean we bolster our own power, status, and place in life. We do this so subtly sometimes, uh, and sometimes not subtly at all. In contrast, though, Mary shows us that who the God we worship, who is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is a God who is personal and public. Not private, but personal. Not political, but public. When God draws near to us, we experience personal joy and public joy. Personal joy. Let's look at verses 46 through 50. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on in all generations, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary really focuses on herself, it seems, at least at the beginning. She says, me or mine, refers to herself uh, several times throughout this passage, but it's a deep, intimate, personal thing for her. She says, he comes, uh, he, uh, my, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God. The very depths of her being is caught up in the person and work of God. And God is really the focus of her um, of her song. He is the subject of all the verbs except a couple here. She says that he has looked. He who is mighty, his name is holy. His mercy, he shows strength. In contrast to how she describes God, she describes herself as humble, servant, and blessed. The humble estate that she has is of low social economic status, is what she's referring to when she says she's a servant. She's saying she's a slave to God. It's a very strong language. But she also says that she's blessed. This is the same word that we have at the beginning of all the Beatitudes. Blessed is the one who. And it's the word makarios. It was originally a sociological term for the upper class, though. They were the blessed ones. They were the happy ones. They were the ones who were looked on with favor. But she is saying, 
I am blessed by God and tying herself to God as a servant of his. She is placing herself in the upper class of God. As God draws near to her, her situation fades away and she becomes caught up in what he is doing. He is a mighty one. He is a king who rescues his people. And we are in deep need of rescue. To say God draws near to us in the person of Jesus Christ means that he has come to rescue us personally in our place, in our position, in our lives, in the deepest places of our being, in our spirits, and in our souls. I was playing the Arcade Fire album, Everything Now, which I think came out in like 2015, 2016. We listened to it a lot when we were in Atlanta in that time frame. And it just dawned on me, though, listening to it uh, this last week, that Arcade Fire, geniuses lyrically and musically and all those things, are telling one complete story from the beginning to the end of their album. Signs of Life is talking about people who go out every night looking for signs of life, but there's no signs of life, so they do it again over and over and over again. Creature Comforts. How do we numb the pain that we experience in our lives? One of the lines is, God, make me famous. If you can't, just make it painless. So how can we get through this life without pain? How can we find peace? And then there's one song that's called, Good God Damn. And it revisits the story of Creature Comforts, where a girl is filling up her bathtub because she can't deal with life. She's putting on a record because she's not sure that she wants to make it through. And when the lyrics are this, uh, you want to get messed up when times are rough. Put your favorite record on, baby, and fill the bathtub up. You want to say goodbye to all your oldest friends with a good goddamn. Lay out your clothes. It's time to go. It's always darkest before the dawn. The sun never shows. I could say goodbye to your oldest friends. Maybe there's a good God. Damn. He changes the language. He changes the feeling of it. When we want to push everybody away, suddenly there's a realization that maybe there is a good God. Maybe that changes things in our life. Maybe there's someone who's going to draw near to us. It's going to be close to us who's personal but not private. Uh, Last January, uh, for whatever reason, I think partially it was uh, the weather uh, and the seasonality that we were in. It was a very hard month for me. And I was listening to uh, David Brooks' album, or album, listening to his book, The Second Mountain, and he talks about men uh, in my age group, uh, and it is the highest um, rate of suicide of men like 35 to 45 in their lives. For whatever reason, as I was listening to it, and as he stated that, I had a very strong and acute mental image of me ending my life. And I just broke down and cried because it wasn't as far away as what I thought it was, as what I wanted it to be. And I sat with that for uh, thought for a few, um, I think for a few hours, maybe, maybe, maybe less than a day. 
And I said, I can't keep this to myself. Like, I got to tell someone about this. So I went and I told Stacy. She said, you need to talk to your counselor. <laughs> you need to tell some friends. You need to bring other people into us. And I talked to a number of people. I talked to some very trusted people that I've known for a very long time. I've talked to uh, a group of pastors that I meet with on a very regular basis. And we have this really um, beautiful intensity of being able to share um, the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves with one another. And it wasn't anything that anyone necessarily said to me. But it was knowing that I wasn't alone. And it was bringing these thoughts, these images, to the light. And it was friends speaking into my life, saying how much they loved me, how much they cared for me, and how much I was not alone. It can be incredibly tempting to keep this private. It's incredibly personal. But to do so, in doing so, in sharing this, God met me. He was near to me. And in admitting that I needed something, that I needed him, that I needed others around me, he showed up and he released me from these thoughts, um, maybe even from the desire, if the desire was truly there or not. I think this is exactly what Mary did. She visited Elizabeth. She stayed with her for three months. She knew this was going to be a hard season in her life, and she reached out because she knew she couldn't do life on her own. That's why she wrote this song, because of the joy she experienced with Elizabeth. She was not alone. What are the areas in your life that you need to admit that you need help? Where are the places, the dark places, that you don't want to admit to yourself that need to be brought into the life? Are there people into the light? Are there people around you, trusted, faithful friends that God has provided that you can reach out to? We're not meant to be alone. God created us to be in community with one another. A private faith says, I can do this on my own. I don't need anyone else. But this is a lie. This is a lie from Satan. A personal faith acknowledges God's presence in community and allows us to admit, I need help. I need others. I don't have to do this alone. It's not good to be alone. Ours is a personal faith, and in doing so, we are able to invite others into it and not keep our lives private from one another, but to share them with one another. It's also a public faith, a public joy that we experience. Look at verses 51 uh, through 55. Mary sings, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and has spoke as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There is a sharp shift in Mary's focus from what God is doing in her life to what God is doing publicly in the people of God. All of these uh, 
um, all the terms and phrases here are located and placed in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and what God has done or has promised to do for the people of Israel. The arm of God is this redemptive work that God does on behalf of Israel when he brings them out of, exodus, uh, out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness, that the arm of God goes before them and with them. This mercy is the word elias. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word hesed, which is the covenantal faithful, faith, faithfulness and love that God has for his people, his commitment to them to ensure that he will do what he promises to do. It says he tears down the proud. He exalts the, hunger, uh, the humble. He fills the hungry. He sends the rich away empty. He scatters uh, the proud, which is uh, really fascinating to me. Uh, as I, even last night as I was, I was going through the passage again, that as we experience God, we are brought into the people of God. But p- being prideful in Scripture is, is saying, I can do it all on my own. And he says, not only are you not are you going to be alone, but you're going to be scattered and out. Instead of being brought in and being in the people, you are being sent out. And he sends the rich away empty. They have enough money. They can buy the things that they have, but their money that they have won't even get them the things that they need so deeply in their lives. They are sent away empty. Instead, he exalts the humble. He looks on those who are without. He is near to the hungry, those who hunger and thirst for him. All these verbs declare not who God is, but what he does as a powerful deliverer of the needy and oppressed. This isn't merely social justice and activism. Um, it's, this is language that is drawn from all parts of Israel's religious, social, political, and ethnic life. This encompasses all of who they are. It's spiritual as well as physical needs. And it is God declaring that he will not be upon in the hands of the powerful, but the powerful, but is powerful on behalf of the pawns in this world. I say I got a far side calendar this last year because it's the first time that I'd seen one in a while, and I had these uh, sitting at my uh, in my bathroom growing up forever. It is I remember it being very very funny, and now I'm going. This is weird. I don't understand. Uh, Gary Larson, Gary Lar, they're little <laughs> uh, generational gap. Uh, they are like one frame cartoons, basically. Uh, that are, I'll, I'll share some with you. They can be like so cutting and hilarious or they can just be like super weird. So the one this weekend is a guy sitting in a restaurant and it's very busy and he's sitting at a table with a sheep and he's whining and dining a sheep. And then there's a sheep backside at the front of the, uh, uh, of the image and, and the guy exclaims, oh God, it's Yvonne. I don't know what this means at all, <laughs> um, but I, and I'm like, okay, how do we work through Larson's like mindset of like the absurdity of a guy whining and dining a sheep, and then another sheep shows up? I don't, I don't understand. We should, probably shouldn't get into that. Um, <laughs> but one of the ones that I saved is uh, he has uh, these four images of a. A guy, an older man with a massive beard and big hair, and he's uh, 
dressed and he's on a stage and he's playing like two saxophones at once. He's juggling. He's shooting himself outside of a cannon and he's doing this little like tap dance routine. And at the bottom of it, he says, Acts of God. And it struck me. I thought it was hilarious because I think so often this is what we view God as in our lives or how God is viewed as this kind of a sideshow act. That the real action is where the power is, where the rich play, where the kings and queens are made. We watch shows like Succession and uh, Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon because there's action there. Kings and queens are deciding the fate of the world and they're battling it out. And that's where the real thing happens. All the religious connotations and and references are kind of how uh, they, the kings and queens, are using uh, religion to their own ends. But Mary declares in her song that God does not play political games. Who's in power? He shows that he's in power, that he's in control, that he draws near and sides with the poor, the oppressed, and the hungry. Public faith, faith is one that gives itself away, relying on God rather than grasping for power and control. Unfortunately, I think the church today doesn't have a reputation for drawing near to the poor, the oppressed, and the hungry. I think our public face all too often is at political grasp of power, and it can be using God for people just naming him um, unspecifically to garner their support from people trying to use him, or it can be where the church is trying to grab power to maintain an ethic or uh, uh, an oppression of other people instead of serving and loving them, instead of giving ourselves away. But historically, the reputation of the church has been quite the opposite. In the plagues in 312 A.D., plagues moved from Ethiopia uh, through the Roman Empire. It took about 12 years And Christians were known for giving themselves away, even to the point of death. They never backed down from the situation. Uh, Eusebius, one of the early um, historians of the church, said, The fruits of the Christians' limitless enthusiasm and devotion became evident to all pagans. They served everyone uh, um, um, Without, without regard, the next quote will explain what I'm trying to say. I can't think of the word. Sometimes that happens when you're speaking publicly, right? Uh, Christians care for the poor, do not respect the wealth, social status, or virtue of other persons in need. They served and loved all those who were affected by the plagues. But did you know that Christian philanthropy accounted for more than 70% of all American philanthropy in 2022? There's a new study that came out from Barna uh, that's been quoted this last week. Um, Christian giving was $300 billion this year. It's outgiving the U.S. government. The Gates Foundation, who is known for this, Bill and Melinda, I think I don't know if they still run the foundation together, um, but they are known for incredible work reaching into uh, really underserved uh, nations and places. But U.S. churches and synagogues sent four and a half times as much money as they did overseas. 
Uh, Christians go the extra mile. They're able to penetrate. We are able to penetrate into places that are far away, that are off the beaten path, that are difficult um, and often incredibly dangerous uh, to get into. Uh, when I, I served as a missionary in Costa Rica uh, for a year, and we went to a place called La Carpio. Uh, quite often, this was really a refugee community that was built in the middle of um, a trash uh, heap, and it was for Nicaraguans coming into Costa Rica, and Costa Rica fleeing uh, violence in their country. They said that um, you can come into our country. We're not going to give you any social services, though. And so there's this massive community, a massive ministry there that um, the organization that I was with went into. Uh, there was a feeding program that I uh, helped out every week. We would uh, take food into some of the most dangerous places um, that I've ever been, uh, where drug dealers control the in and the out. There is only one in and out, um, and oftentimes they will let you in, but they will not let you out. Uh, but the the local missionary uh, there had been in gangs for a while and knew how to kind of navigate that culture and said, we're here to serve you. We're here to love you. And so we would drive down into this uh, valley, and we would open up this van, and we would serve everybody in their food, and none of us ever felt threatened um, because of that, because really because God was watching over us, but because of the services that we were providing there. Most of this giving comes in millions of $50 checks uh, to organizations like uh, International Justice Mission, um, uh, Compassion International, those types of organizations. These $50 checks amount to $44 billion of, of money and help that is going overseas. The U.S. gave $33 billion, which is not nothing, but it's amazing what the church is able to do when it gives itself away. This is what a public and not political faith can do. I think it's sad that our political reputation precedes us um, as we continue to grasp for political power. I don't know that anybody's running for public office in here, so I don't know that this necessarily directly applies in these terms. But it's not just political power that we often uh, go through. We are tempted to do this in our everyday lives as well. We shift blame away from ourselves. I know that I do that when I'm stressed, when I'm angry, when I'm frustrated. I blame all the other people around me, uh, probably first and foremost the people that are nearest and dearest to me. It's because you, Stacy, or Michael, or Evelyn and Joshua, um, that I can't do the thing that I feel like I need to be doing. We orient ourselves around us. We become proud and arrogant rather than giving our lives over to God and rather than giving our our um, pain, our heartache, uh, our frustrations to him as well. We do this by not looking out um, for those in need around us. But we also have people in our lives that leverage their power over us as well, who use and abuse us. It could be tempting in these situations to try to appease them, to bind ourselves to them, to chase after the proverbial carrot on a stick that they're holding out to us, prove ourselves in such a way that we can gain favor, we can gain power and control with them. But again, Mary reminds us that God helps his servant Israel. By being God's servant is enslaving ourselves to him, binding ourselves to him, declaring that he is the one who must take care of us. The servant of the Lord forsakes presumption, power, and prestige, and casts 
his fate irrevocably on God. And God promises to rescue and vindicate his servant. How can you give yourself away rather than grab at power? Who do you need deliverance from? What would it mean to bind yourself to God as his servant to cast all your cares on him? In the person of Jesus Christ, God shows us that he is on the side of those who are without by being himself poor and oppressed. I think one of the biggest lies that we are told and we tell ourselves is that we are alone. If we're going to do anything in this life, it's up to us. We keep our problems, we keep our failures, we keep our needs to ourselves, and we keep them private. Or we say we are alone, and so we have to grab after everything that we want and need in this life, including power and control. Both of these ways are doing life alone. But in Christ, we belong to God and to his people. We are bound to one another because it is not good for us to be alone. It is this, not being alone, being tied to God, that gives us joy and peace this Advent season. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful uh, that we are not alone. We are grateful that you have come, that you have not left yourself out of being without, but you have come to be with us. And you know our needs. You've experienced them yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us have a song in our mouth for what you are going to do. Help us to bring our needs and concerns to you. Help us to bring uh, the desires of our hearts to you to, to, so that you can exercise your mighty arm wrapping around us, caring for us, protecting us. Remind us that we are not alone, that we are a part of the people of God. We're bound together by your love and mercy and grace and experiencing it ourselves. We can extend ourselves. We can give up control. We can give ourselves to one another, Lord. Help us admit that we need you and one another this Advent season. Give us joy and give us peace so that we can serve you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.